Welcome to episode 36 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. This is going to be a special edition one. Obviously, it's going to be releasing midweek. Uh, but the reason why is because this is the end of 2019. This is the last day of 2019. So I decided that uh, with some encouragement uh, from some comments as well, I was sort of 50-50 on it before whether or not I wanted to do end-of-year awards. Uh, but I had gotten a comment on my previous podcast, 35, from a user, Epison eBay, uh, who had asked to, to do awards. And given that I was kind of 50-50 on it anyway, I figured, you know what, I might as well just go ahead and do it. To me, awards are sort of this thing that has sort of been ruined like over time just between like working in marketing and sort of seeing what, what award shows effectively are for. And then also, if you look at a lot of the big award shows like your your Grammys and other ones like that, it, it seems as though the goal of those isn't actually to figure out who did the best and like award them as much as it is uh, to create like a networking event and then also um, sort of push any other agenda that you might have. Oftentimes, the, the movies that are selected as the best movies aren't the ones that actually people want to go see. They're, they're ones that have like a deeper message that the people who run the award show feel is important and they want people to see. Uh, and then if you look at awards, like even like with MMA awards, oftentimes you, you have like this two-way street where for the athletes, if they receive an award in MMA, typically, I mean, think about where you work, chances are if you don't fight MMA, if you only got positive reinforcement maybe like once or twice a year at that, you probably wouldn't feel too good about that. Um, but as an MMA fighter, if you only fight two or three times a year, uh, if you only win half of those, and that's just like assuming your average, um, and that's even assuming that you get like great positive reinforcement after the wins, like there's sort of like this gap for it. So oftentimes for fighters, anytime that there's a chance to get positive reinforcement, they really appreciate it. Uh, so for them, it's a nice little ego boost. But then also for the media outlets who do the awards, they like to take advantage of that. Uh, so if they have like a bunch of different awards that like post up on Twitter and like, tag the fighter in there knowing that the fighter is likely to, to end up sharing it. And oftentimes the fighters who tend to share things a little more than the other ones uh, end up winning more awards, if you may or may not have noticed. Uh, so Bryce Mitchell, for example, is very quick to, to share something if you say something nice about him. So if you give him submission of the year for, for Twister and put up a post about it, there's a good chance that he's going to share it and share your little award show and kind of help help build you off of that. Uh, same thing with Rory Mossadol. I guess Abe, Abe Kawa is probably the one who's running that account where if you say nice stuff about him, uh, chances are that's going to get shared around a lot as well. Uh, so at least for this, I'm just, I'm just going to leave it in the podcast. I'm not going to like put up any posts and like try to try to use these awards as a way to like win favor with any fighters or try to win access or anything. To me, this is more just looking at some of the more interesting categories of the year. Uh, just just talking about where I see it, like like what I see being um, the, the top performances there, and then giving my awards for it. As far as what these awards are, what, what they are, I, I put this together over the course of a couple days, so it's not as though I've like put a ton of research into it. I did put some research into it, just looking through nominees. Uh, but with that being said, if I pick someone as fighter of the year and you think that I'm wrong, you, you can definitely feel free to comment on it, but it's not as though this is something that I like, feel really strongly about or feel as though like I have the correct answer. One of the great things about MMA is that oftentimes you can have these debates and think, oh, I wonder how this guy would do against that guy. And and you can just kind of go back and forth, well, well, if this guy does this, then he'll win, but if that guy does that, then he'll win. But ultimately, there's going to be a fight at the end of the day, and you're actually going to be able to find out who's going to win. The thing with these awards, though, is that we can have these arguments, but there's never going to be like a way to find it out concrete. So to me, this is just something that's for fun. Um, but the awards that I'm going to go through, I'll go through Fighter of the Year. I'll have Fight of the Year, Upset of the Year. I will be talking about KO of the Year, Sub of the Year, a few different business-related ones, so Business Move of the Year, Promo of the Year, Promotional Failure of the Year, and then uh, a couple other topics, given that oftentimes on my podcast I talk about wrestling and jiu-jitsu. I have a BJJ player or BJJ fighter of the year, and then a NCAA wrestler of the year. Uh, I, I do some work on international wrestling, but most of what I focus on is NCAA, so I'll, I'll sort of leave it within college wrestling for that. Uh, so as far as what order we'll go in, 
I'll actually go with the big one first. So I'll start off with fight of the year and then just work, work my way, way down from there. So the way that I want to do fight of the year, uh, rather than just have like four different nominees and then go from there, I'm actually going to do a little mental exercise. So we're going to have what's going to end up coming down to two nominees. So I'm going to have a nominee who is a current champion and a nominee who's a contender, someone who's doing well in their division. And so we'll, we'll start at 125. The current champion is Henry Cejudo. So right now he's the nominee for, for the current champions at 135, also Cejudo. So again, Cejudo stays through. 145 is Volkanovski. So now the question is, uh, who has a better resume for fight of the year, Henry Cejudo or Alex Volkanovski? Henry Cejudo's resume would be that he beat TJ Dillashaw at flyweight in January. And then he beat Marlon Moraes in June, and that was it. So he only had two fights. Uh, if you're just looking at what happened in the octagon in the... TJ Dillashaw fight, he, he won that fight pretty dominantly, won it within about 30 seconds by TKO. In the Marlon Moraes fight, he just got severely beaten for the first round, probably lost that round 10-8, uh, but then came on strong and then won the next two rounds with a finish in the third. Um, so you, you would compare that to Alex Volkanovski, who I believe the Chad Mendes fight was this year. I could be wrong about that. That might have been like the year-end card from last year. If it is, um, then again, this could be an area where I'm wrong here. Um, but I believe that the Chad Mendes fight was from last year. Uh, so he has the win over Chad Mendes, he has the win over Jose Aldo, and then the win over Max Holloway, which arguably, if you're making a case based off of longevity, you could argue that those three are the top three uh, featherweights of all time, uh, just based off of longevity at the top. Now, obviously, Conor McGregor would have a say in that, uh, even though he had a short run through the division, he, he beat all three of them, actually. Um, so I, I don't know that I would agree with the ranking saying that those are one, two, and three, but in terms of guys who have had longevity at the top of that division, those guys have all been staples there. And Volkanovski got wins over all of them. Um, as far as how the fights went in the fight with Mendez, it, it was sort of back and forth. He got dropped at one point uh, right before he was able to finish Mendez. He actually had Mendez take him down, and Mendez had both hooks in and had his back taken, uh, but wasn't able to secure a seatbelt grip and ended up losing the position. And then Volkanovski got up and then knocked him out. Uh, so a little bit back and forth wasn't a dominant win, but it was still a, a dominant finish, I guess you could say. Uh, had the fight with Aldo, which was a, a dominant three-round win. And then the fight with Max Holloway, which was dominant uh, through the first three rounds. And then I guess at that point, he kind of knew he had the fight won. And as Holloway was starting to make his reads and come back, uh, it seems as if Volkanovski, who had suffered a broken hand, was also sort of um, taking it off the gas a little bit there. But he did get the win. So for comparing those resumes, both of them had a fight where they weren't necessarily dominant all the way through. So there was the Marais fight with Cejudo, and then there was the Mendez fight for Volkanovski. Uh, the fight that was dominant for Cejudo against TJ Dillashaw was definitely more dominant than, or I, I, I guess um, more memorable, you could say, than, than the ones that Volkanovski had, given that you have like a 30-second knockout relative, or versus like a 15-minute um, decision over Aldo or a 25-minute decision over Max Holloway. But with that being said, to me, the, the fact that he did have that extra fight I, I think the resumes are fairly close, even if you just take out one of those fights. But ha having both fights in there, I think Volkanovski actually has a better case for fighter of the year uh, than Henry Cejudo does. Now, granted, a lot of the reason why Cejudo would, would claim that he, he deserves it is because he supposedly saved the flyweight division. I, I mean, the, saving the flyweight division, as far as what he did in the octagon, was he took a fight in January and then just sat out and didn't do anything about the title ever since. It, it's good that the UFC kept the division around. Uh, it seems as though the plan had TJ won, then <clears throat> they would have shut the division down. But to me, that's when I look at fight of the year, I, I try to look a little bit more in terms of what they did inside the cage, more so than like what storylines you could build build around it. And while the whole save the flyweight division is a fun little storyline, I, I don't know that what happened in the cage for him trumps um, Alex Volkanovski's results 
Uh, so then I would take Volkanovski so far as the contender for the champions. Uh, so then you can go up a weight class, and that's Khabib. So Volkanovski had those three wins. Khabib just had one fight. It was the fight against Dustin Poirier. Uh, got the third-round submission. But again, his one fight is not going to trump Volkanovski's three fights. So Volkanovski then moves forward. Then we have Kamara Usman. At welterweight, Usman had a very dominant decision win over a longtime champion, Tyron Woodley. Uh, in some ways, you can compare that to Volkanovski and what he did to Holloway. I think Usman's performance against Woodley was more impressive than Volkanovski's performance against Holloway, but those are still fairly similar achievements in the cage. Uh, and then you had Usman's five-round war with Colby Covington, uh, where it was split 2-2 two to two on one of the judges. The other judge had Colby up 3-1 to one heading into the fifth round. Uh, so it was a competitive fight. Both fighters had their had their moments in there, and then Usman was able to get the finish at the end. Uh, but it's not as though that was a dominant performance from Usman. It was, I, I guess, again, you can argue the dominant finish, but over, over the course of the fight, it's not as though he was just running through Colby the entire time. So to compare that to um, Ch- Ch- or the Chad Mendes fight, I guess you could make a little bit of comparison there where it was sort of back and forth, but then also having the Alda fight in there, I, I think you have to keep Volkanovski ahead of Usman for that reason. So again, Volkanovski moves forward. Uh, next champion is Israel Adesanya. Uh, this one, at least this time, he has another fighter who had three fights. Uh, so for Adesanya, he had the Anderson Silva fight. He had the Kelvin Gastelum five-round war. And then he had the most recent knockout of Robert Whitaker. So if we're comparing, the, the hardest fight for Adesanya was definitely the Gastelum fight, which won five rounds. He, he got rocked at times in it, but still was able to come back, come out strong in the fifth round. Um, so not exactly a dominant win for him, but he, he was able to, to get a clear win there. Um, I, I guess in some ways you can compare that to the Chad Mendes fight for Volkanovski, where Volkanovski also had some rough moments in the Mendes fight, but ultimately was able to get the win. Uh, Volkanovski was able to get the finish, whereas uh, it, it seemed as though Adesanya was on the verge of getting the finish at the end there, but wasn't able to do so. So I guess you could argue slight edge to Volkanovski there because he actually was able to finish his opponent. Um, then looking at the Anderson Silva fight, uh, relative to like, uh, the Jose Aldo fight, I, I think those are fairly similar. So then the last fight that I would look at to compare would be the Robert Whitaker title fight versus the Max Holloway title fight. And with Israel Adesanya, he actually got the finish in the Whitaker fight and dropped him in the first round, finished him in the second. Whereas Volkanovski wasn't able to get a finish, uh, just had a prolonged decision win there. And while it's still impressive what he did, I, I think if you have to compare them, ju- just the fact that both Whitaker and Holloway were longtime champions or champions for, for over a year at their weight class. Be, because of the fact that Adesanya had a more impressive win there, I think that would push him ahead in my book and, and put him as the current champion of the year uh, with two champions left to go. Next champion to look at would be John Jones versus Israel Adesanya. Jones beat Anthony Smith and, by decision and beat Tiago Santos by split decision. Now, granted, I didn't think it should have been a split decision. I thought it was a pretty clear win for John Jones. Uh, but even still, he, he, he did lose a round or two in there. So comparing that in, in those two fights relative to Israel Adesanya in his three fights, you, you'd have to take Adesanya ahead of him. So that would leave Stipe Miocic as the last champion to compete with Adesanya. Miocic had one fight this year. It was a four-round fight with Daniel Cormier where he lost the first three rounds prior to getting a knockout in the fourth. So I, I don't see any way that you could take Stipe ahead of Israel Adesanya for fight of the year as a champion. So what that means is that I have Israel Adesanya as the winner of the champions bracket for fight of the year. Uh, so now I'm going to go through the contenders, and then we'll pick a winner of the contenders bracket, and they'll face off against Adesanya in my little thought experiment here, and then whoever gets that will, will get fight of the year. Uh, so going from weight classes up, so for flyweight, I didn't feel as though anyone really had 
great enough of a resume to get it. I guess you could argue Figueredo might have uh, with that fight of the year one over Pantoja. Now he's got a title fight up ahead of him. Benavides had a good fight early in the year, but a lot of the top flyweights haven't been all that active. So I'm not putting any of them in here. As far as some of the better performances, though, from Bantamweight, uh, the three guys who I'm looking at are Peter Yan, Aljamain Sterling, and Corey Sandhagen. So Peter Yan has wins over John Dodson, Jimmy Rivera, and Uriah Faber. Aljamain Sterling has wins over Jimmy Rivera and Pedro Munoz. And then Corey Sandhagen, I believe it was Mario Batista, John Lineker, and uh, Rafael Sansao. So for picking who had the best resume at Bantamweight right now, I would probably take Sterling out just because he had the two wins relative, rather than the three from Sandhagen and Yan. And with Sandhagen having that win over Batista, that sort of hurts him. Uh, did have a really good performance against the Sun Uh But to me, Peter Yan, even though people are trying to dog on Uriah Faber after the fact, Faber looked pretty good out there. Um, the win over Jimmy Rivera was really impressive for Peter Yan. The win over John Dotson, especially when you understand how fast John Dotson is for him to just get completely just destroyed on the feet the way that he was. I was most impressed with Peter Yan, so at least through Bantamweight, to, Bantamweight so far, the, the leader in the contender side of the bracket is Peter Yan. Uh, then looking at Featherweight, uh, the people to look at there would be Zabit Magomed Sharipov, uh, Korean Zombie, and Yair Rodriguez. Yair Rodriguez just had the one fight against Jeremy Stevens, although I guess technically there was two. There was the no contest and the actual fight that he won, uh, which was a, a fight of the year candidate, arguably, uh, al- although he did lose a round in that fight. Korean Zombie had a knockout of Hanato Moicano, and then also uh, Tikio Frankie Edgar. Uh, looked fantastic in both performances. And then Zabit had a decision win over Jeremy Stevens and a decision win over Calvin Cater. Uh, both of those guys are really tough. Uh, I would have to take Zabit and Yair out of there, though, and say that Zombie was probably the, the contender from Featherweight. Uh, so then comparing Korean Zombie to Peter Yan. Um, sort of tough, but I think I'd actually lean Korean Zombie just because both guys were top five at the time that he beat them. So, and not, not only did he beat him, but he beat him within a round and just dominated them on the feet. Uh, but then when he got on the ground, he used really, really good positional jujitsu to control and get into some dominant positions, really control from the back. And he, he got the finish with Moicano. Eventually, um, Edgar was able to get back up after taking a ton of damage, but he got put back down really quickly and was finished there. So I would say Korean Zombie is now the leader for contenders. At lightweight, the only person who really stuck out to me was Justin Gaethje. Uh, as, as someone who's a contender who you could argue is having a fight of the year type of type of year, Gaethje has knockout wins over Barboza and Cerrone. So comparing Justin Gaethje's knockouts to Edson Barboza and Donald Cerrone relative to Korean Zombie getting Hanato Moicano and Frankie Edgar. I mean, it, it's pretty comparable there. I would say that Korean Zombie looked more dominant in his wins. Um, Gaethje definitely was pretty dominant against Donald Cerrone with Barboza. That fight went on a little bit longer. Uh, before he was able to get the finish there, although, again, he's still looked great doing it. I don't think that there's, like, a clear winner between the two of them, but I think I I, I kind of have to lean Korean Zombie just because of how quick it happened and how good he looked in all facets of the game. It wasn't just the striking, uh, but how he was able to mix in the grappling to, to really dominate position once he has opponents hurt and, and, and use his positional dominance on the ground and, and and use that to get the finish. To me, that was a little bit more impressive than what Justin Gaethje did. Not to say what Gaethje did wasn't impressive at all, because with, with Gaethje, once he knocked his opponents down, it's not like he really needed to show fantastic back control to finish him, and he just kind of had him done at that point. So, you, you can make an argument either way. Like I said before, I'm not, like, dead set on this. It's not as though whatever I pick is right, and if you think differently, you're wrong. Uh, if you think differently, you can definitely tell me in the comments why you think that my my logic here is wrong. Uh, but part of the reason why I'm doing it this way is so you can actually see my logic, rather than just arbitrarily picking a few people and saying, hey, this is who I got, so yeah, that's it. Um, but I would, I would move forward with Korean Zombie here. Uh, so then we move up to Welterweight. 
where you have Leon Edwards, Jorge Masvidal, and Jeff Neal as the guys who I think are, are, are most deserving of being looked at. Leon Edwards has a win over Gunnar Nelson, which was by decision, and he went over uh, RDA, which was also by decision. Jorge Masvidal is often talked about. He had a knockout of Darren Till in the second round, a knockout of Ben Askren within five seconds, and then a doctor stoppage TKO of Nate Diaz after three rounds. And then Jeff Neal with a decision win over Bilal Muhammad. Um, I believe he knocked out Nico Price and then also um, knocked out Mike Perry. I would probably, though what Jeff Neal did was really impressive, I would think I'd have to take him off of here. Even though he did get a couple of finishes compared to Leon Edwards, it's just the, the quality competition kind of plays a role in here. And the fact that he didn't get the chance to face off against a top 10 guy or like a top 5 guy and really, really prove himself against there, it kind of hurts him for this year. Now, granted, if he continues his momentum, He's definitely a guy who could be looked at for fight of the year next year, uh, but I'd probably have to take him out of it. Uh, so then between Leon Edwards and his two decision wins versus Rory Masvidal and his three KOs slash TKOs, definitely have to go with Masvidal. So then you be comparing Jorge Masvidal and Korean Zombie. So Zombie had two really dominant finishes against Hanano Moicano and Frankie Edgar. Uh, Jorge Masvidal, uh, a really dominant win over Darren Till, which part of what people kind of forget about with this story is that Masvidal had taken a long time off. Before he had taken a long time off, he had a fight against Wonderboy Thompson, and it was sort of a similar to Darren Till in that it's like, kind of like this long, uh, really good striker at welterweight who just kept it on the feet and was able to, to outpoint him and just beat him out there. A lot of people expected the same result from Darren Till, especially given that Darren Till and um, Wonderboy Thompson fought each other, and Darren Till sort of beat Wonderboy at his own game. So not only did Masvidal get the win here, but he got it over a guy who w- was a fairly similar matchup to someone who gave him a lot of problems before. So to me, that's actually a really impressive performance. Not not so much that he got the knockout, but who he got it against and what was expected of him heading into that fight. The fight with Askren, I mean, what's there to say about it? It's a five-second knockout. Like, did a great job, made a great read, uh, knew it was going to happen, and got an awesome finish. Definitely have to give him a lot of credit there. And then the Diaz fight, uh, Diaz is a really tough guy to deal with. Uh, a lot of people were concerned that maybe over time that his pace would cause issues for him. Horry didn't look like he was having any issues with pace. Uh, was outlining him on the feet, was throwing some great kicks, had him hurt. Just overall great performance. So to me, I would have to take Masvidal ahead of the Korean Zombie. So that would move him as the current contender of the year. Um, at middleweight, the three guys who I'm looking at are Paulo Costa, Jared Cannonier, and Edwin Sh- and Edmund Shabazian. Uh, so Shabazian, in some ways, is sort of similar to Jeff Neal in that he had a few wins put together that were all impressive. Uh, but they weren't against the the biggest name, so he beat Charles Bird, Jack Marshman, and Brad Tavares, all with finishes. Um, Paulo Costa had the win over Yoel Romero and put himself in position for a title fight. Given that it was just one win, I, I don't see a way that I could I could have him ahead of Shabazian, even though the win was a lot more meaningful than the wins that Shabazian had. Uh, but then you have uh, Jared Cannonier, who had a TKO win over Anderson Silva, and also a win over Jared Can- or, uh, Jack Hermanson, who looked like he was on a trajectory to be fight of the year prior to that. So to me, I, I would have to take Jared Cannonier at middleweight, so then comparing Cannonier to Masvidal. Uh, Cannonier had two finishes, Masvidal had three. Uh, the win over Hermanson was pretty meaningful, but Masvidal also beat a top contender in, in his division as well, so I would have to keep Masvidal as the guy. Uh, so then it moves up to light heavyweight, uh, where I'm looking at um, Reyes and Anderson. Anderson's only win of the year was against Johnny Walker, so you kind of have to take him out of there, so then Reyes... He had a split decision win over Vulcan Ozdemir, and then that dominant win over Chris Weidman. So for Dominic Reyes, I guess that sort of makes him the contender of the year at, at light heavyweight. Obviously, he's got a title fight up ahead of him, but I don't see that resume being anything close to what Masvidal has. So Masvidal, 
um, stays as that guy. Uh, with heavyweight being the only weight class left, there's a few guys at heavyweight worth looking at, though. There's Francis Ngannou, who had quick knockouts over Junior, Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez. You have Curtis Blades, who beat Justin Willis and then had the famous go-home-big-titty interview after that. Um, and then also beats Shamil Abdurahimov, uh, finished him. And then Yarzino Rosenstrike, who has four wins on the year, uh, knocked out Junior Albini, Alan Crowder, Andre Arlovsky, and Alistair Overeem. To me, I would have to put Ngannou ahead of Blades, just given that the guys who we beat were were bigger names and more impressive wins than Curtis Blades. Uh, so then comparing Ngannou's two wins to Rosenstrike's four uh, is where it gets interesting. Uh, but with that being said, Rosenstrike didn't look great in the first round of the Albini fight. Looked like he was about to lose the Overeem fight. Uh, so while he had a, a great year and definitely worked himself into contention here, it's not as though he was dominant all the way throughout. Granted, the Crowder and Olofsky fights are pretty quick and pretty de- pretty decisive in his favor, but I actually have to take Ngannou ahead of him. Uh, so then you would have Francis Ngannou uh, going up against Jorge Masvidal. Unfortunately for Francis, he was having a lot of trouble finding fights this year. And I have a feeling had he gotten a third fight and performed similar to how he did in the, in the first two, a, a good argument could be made that he is the fighter of the year, definitely the contender of the year, but given that he only had two fights, even though they were impressive against guys in Velasquez and JDS who, like, five years ago or seven years ago, um, were the cream of the crop and were ahead of the rest of the division, I, I just have a hard time taking Ngannou ahead of Jorge Masvidal, um, given the lack of activity, which isn't Ngannou's fault, but it, it just is what it is. So with that being said, I'm going to take Jorge Masvidal as the contender of the year, uh, which then creates a question of Israel Adesanya versus Frank, or versus um, Jorge Masvidal. So the big case that Adesanya would have is that he was able to win a title, uh, technically won two title fights. The Gaston fight was an interim title fight, and then he had the actual title fight with Robert Whitaker. If you want to call the fight against Nate Diaz a title fight for Masvidal, I guess you could. Um, oh, man, this is tough because both of them have great resumes. If you compare the Till win for Masvidal versus the Anderson Silva win for for Adesanya, you definitely have to give the edge to Masvidal there. Um, both are tough strikers. Uh, you could argue that currently today, Till is a tougher fighter than Anderson Silva. Masvidal finished Till, and Adesanya did not finish Anderson Silva. So I guess through the first fight, you would give the edge to Masvidal. Uh, second fight for Masvidal, you have the five-second knockout of Askren um, versus the five-round war with Kelvin Gastelum. The, the five-round war was impressive, but again, five seconds just shows dominance. So again, Masvidal, I guess, has even a bigger lead heading into that final fight. Uh, so then it would be Masvidal's three-round beatdown of Nate Diaz versus the two-round finish of Robert Whitaker. I would give Adesanya the advantage on the Whitaker fight, but I think as a whole, you probably have to lean Jorge Masvidal. So for that reason, Jorge Masvidal is my fight of the year. But again, like I mentioned before, if you feel like someone else deserves it more, maybe someone who I listed that you felt um, had a better case than what I gave them, go ahead and tell me in the comments below. If maybe if I missed someone completely, let me know about that as well. Uh, but I have Jorge Masvidal as the fight of the year. For fight of the year, I was looking at uh, fights that won fight of the night, uh, and then just picking out ones that I that really stuck out of my mind as being great fights. Uh, I ended up selecting just four. Uh, you, you could definitely argue some other ones belonged in there, but the four that I selected were Israel Adesanya versus Kelvin Gaslam, Kamaru Usman versus Colby Covington, uh, Paulo Costa versus Joel Romero, and Pedro Munoz versus Cody Garbrandt. Um, I, I guess I'll split it into a bracket of four, so you go Adesanya Gaslam versus Usman Covington. Um, and then just kind of bracket it out from there. So at least between those two fights, both of them were great in that heading into the fifth round, there was uncertainty in terms of who was going to get the win. Um, at, at that point in the fifth round, one fighters decided to stand up and say, you know what, this is my fight. I'm going to take it from here. And in the, um, 
in the Adesanya Gaslam case, Adesanya was that guy. In the Usman versus Covington case, uh, Usman after a couple a couple of rough minutes was that guy. I would lean towards the Adesanya Gaslam fight, and the reason why is because there were there were more opportunities throughout the fight where it was just someone's getting someone was getting close to being finished. Um, and within the first four rounds, there were also more positions that were run through. In the Usman versus Covington fight, it was primarily a striking fight between two wrestlers. Now, granted, both of them have worked in their striking a lot, and it was a decent striking match. Um, but the Gaslam versus uh, Adesanya fight, we, we saw some grappling in there as well. There were some submission attempts that were pretty close. So to me, that, that Adesanya-Gaslam fight would advance to the finals. On the bottom half of the bracket, you would have Costa and Romero versus Munoz and Garbrandt. Munoz and Garbrandt lasted a round. Um, really great back-and-forth fight prior to Munoz finally landing the, the big shot on Garbrandt to knock him out. Costa versus Romero went all three rounds. Both of them landed some huge shots that you just didn't understand how either of them could take them, but they were able to take it and keep moving forward. Uh, ends up going to, I believe, a split decision where Costa got the win there. Uh, given the fact that it went all three rounds and given that it, there were so many back-and-forth um, opportunities with it. Now, granted, the, the Munoz and Garbrandt fight was a little back-and-forth as well. I, I would still have to lean Costa-Romero on that. Uh, so then for fight of the year, you would have Adesanya-Gaston versus Costa versus Romero. And to me... Having those extra two rounds definitely helps the Adesanya Gaslam fight a lot. Um, we definitely got to see saw more see more from both of the fighters, and I think while that Costa Romero fight was great, having those two extra rounds definitely um, pushes it in favor of Adesanya Gaslam. So I will give Israel Adesanya versus Kelvin Gaslam the fight of the year uh, for upset of the year. I was looking at um, both betting odds, then also well, I guess it was mostly betting odds, but then also. Um, Part of it was based off of how, how high up they were in the division. So there were some betting upsets that were lower on the card or a handful of really big betting upsets from the Dana White Contender Series. But sometimes betting upsets are, are the case because no one knows who one of the fighters is, and so they, they overrate one or underrate another. And, but when you have fighters who are known commodities and there's a, a major line in favor of one and, and the guy who's the underdog still comes through, I, I think that has to weigh pretty heavy too. But the four, the four ones I picked were Kama Worthy versus Devontae Smith. Uh, Henry Corrales versus Aaron Pico, Jorge Masvidal versus Darren Till, and Anthony Pettis versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. So, uh, again, I'll split this into a, a bracket of four. So we'll have Kamalworthy versus Devontae Smith and Henry Corrales versus Aaron Pico. You can make an argument that neither of these were major upsets if you really were sharp on what was going on here. I actually bet the Kamalworthy versus Devontae Smith one and, and, and made, my, and made a, a good amount of money on it. And the reason why is because in the preview to it, and I actually made this call like minutes before they entered the cage, there was a preview where Smith was saying, yeah, we used to train together, but this isn't like training anymore. It's different now. And when I heard that, being someone who, as someone who's trained before, I know that if I had a training partner who I always got the better of, I would never talk in those terms. Um, but if I had a training partner who we'd either split with or who, who, get, who would get the better of me, then I might talk in the terms of, oh, well, it, it's not like it used to be. Uh, so, so that gave me a red flag that this shouldn't. This was more of like a split. This fight was, probably should have been more of like an even, even money fight, or, or maybe even favor of worthy. Uh, but given that he was talking the way that it was, it definitely should not have been a plus six forty situation where Smith was a minus one, minus one thousand favorite. And so for that reason, I ended up putting some money down on worthy and ended up winning it. But from a betting odds standpoint, that was the biggest upset in the UFC. The Corrales versus Pico one uh, again. If you knew how good Henry Corrales was. Uh, there's reasonably that he can get the win there. Even with that being said, Pico came out strong. Looked like he was about to finish Corrales before he got caught, uh, trying to put him away. Uh, so if I have to compare Worthy, Smith, and Corrales versus Pico, I would probably... Uh, hmm. That's a tough one. I, I guess I'll have to give it to, to Worthy versus Smith just because of the odds on that one. Because it, to me, there, there's an argument to be made that the Corrales-Pico one might be a little bit bigger, but 
to me, it's kind of close, so I kind of have to defer to the odds as like the tiebreak on that. So I, I guess I'll say Worthy versus Smith. Um, as far as Masvidal versus Till, I already talked about sort of like the, the backstory on that fight where Masvidal had lost to Wonderboy Thompson and Till was supposed to be a similar fighter to him. This was supposed to be Till's chance to, to get back in the win column. They had him fighting overseas in London. Uh, everything was set up for Till to win, and Masvidal came through and, and won in spectacular fashion. Um, Pettis versus Wonderboy. Again, you have Pettis moving up from lightweight, going up against the or arguably the best striker at welterweight. I guess you could also argue Till might have been ahead of him there uh, at that point in time, but no one really expected Pettis to win that fight. Pettis was getting beat for the majority of that fight, uh, but he was able to come back and, and get that Superman punch knockout at the end of the second round. Uh, so if I'm comparing Masvidal, Till, and Pettis versus Thompson, I, I mean, heading in, I, I don't think I, either of, either Pettis or Masvidal were expected to win uh, heading in, uh, e- even by the people who, who knew how their games matched up uh, relative to Till and Thompson. I, I guess, hmm, I would probably have to lean Pettis on this one. And, and, and part of the reason why I would lean Pettis is not just because of what the expectations were heading in, but because those expectations seem to be playing out a little bit more in that Pettis fight um, through most of the first two rounds. Whereas with the Masvidal fight um, coming in right away, he, he showed that he was a better striker than people had given him credit for. So I, I, I guess I'll lean Pettis, but again, this isn't one that I feel strongly about. But we'll say Pettis versus Thompson. So then you have Kamworthy versus Devontae Smith versus Anthony Pettis versus Stephen Thompson for biggest upset. And I guess, even though the numbers would say that Kamalworthy should have upset of the year here, I would actually lean Pettis versus Thompson here just because I feel like if you knew that story or you heard that story about them training together in the past and the way that Smith was talking about it, I think that would make the fight seem a little bit closer than no matter what else you could have possibly heard about the Pettis versus Thompson matchup. I think a lot of people expected Thompson to get the better of him there. He was getting the better of him there prior to getting caught with that Superman punch. So I'll say upset of the year is Anthony Pettis versus Steven Thompson. For submission of the year, I've got four selected here. So again, we'll we'll run it in a bracket of four. So we have Bryce Mitchell's Twister, uh, Misha Serkinov's Peruvian Necktie, um, Manny Bermudez uh, going from crucifix to a guillotine choke, and then um, Jack Hermanson with that guillotine choke against Dave Branch. Um, so what I'm looking at for sub of the year, the reason why I selected the ones I did, uh, it seems as though a lot of people who are doing awards on this, they're they're picking more so based off of who got submitted or how big the fight was rather than like the quality of the submission itself. To me, what I was trying to look for was more so um, submissions that are rare that you don't see all that often or submissions that were very um, technically set up, just excellent setups um, and, and really sharp finishing skills as well. Um, just, just having the hands in the right place, having the wrist turned in the correct direction, like a lot of those little details. Um, now, now, granted, like I mentioned before, this is a list I put together pretty quickly. There's definitely a, a very good chance that I'm missing some really good options here. Maybe an option better than the ones I selected. So, again, if, if you have anything in mind, definitely comment and let me know. Um, but for Bryce Mitchell, he, he has the, the Twister, which is an, an uncommon submission. And then for Misha Serkinov, that Peruvian necktie, also another one that's fairly uncommon. Um, as far as what was more impressive... Serkinov, um, what's interesting to me, and again, like I mentioned with the details, is that when he was going for it, he, he had that little detail where he started to cover the mouth and sort of block the airway. Now, granted, a Peruvian necktie typically isn't an air choke. If you got it right, it's more of a blood choke, so it's not as though blocking an airway is necessary. Uh, but once he once he did that, that was kind of like the final straw that got the tap. So I, I liked him not only going for the Peruvian necktie, but also adding that little um, unique little detail to get the finish on it. For Bryce Mitchell... Um, really impressive how he was able to get the fight to the ground quickly against Sales and then um, get to that position on the back where he was able to advance to the twister. 
pretty nasty one as well, given how hard he was cranking. Uh, definitely glad nothing broke in there because it looked like some serious damage could have been done had had uh, sales waited a little bit too long or had Mitchell um, kept going after after the tap. But to me, I, I'm going to give the slight edge to Misha, Misha Serkinov because, again, like I mentioned before, I really like looking for those little details in submissions. And um, both of them had somewhat rare submissions here with the Peruvian necktie versus the Twister. But seeing those little details added at the end really really did it for me with Serkinov. So Serkinov moves on to the finals. Manny Bermudez. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit biased towards this one because what, what he did kind of comes right out of a lot of my game. I, I like to play a lot of Crucifix. Um, I also like to use the guillotine. The, the guillotine is my favorite submission. Uh, so for him to to come up on top, look to use a, a top-mounted Crucifix, um, use that Crucifix to type an arm and then uh, sneak in a guillotine choke and then be able to finish from there, it, it was very um, very enjoyable for me. It was something where I, after I watched it, the next day that I went into training, it was something that I was trying to emulate, and I actually hit it a couple times, which I really liked. Um, so... Personally, probably my favorite submission of the year, but if we're trying to be fair here and just look at it from a general standpoint, you have to look at some of the other options out there as well. But it was still a great submission, uh, how he was able to use the crucifix position to, to set up a guillotine choke and, and bait his opponent right into it. Um, for Jack Hermanson and David Branch, Hermanson has this guillotine that it, it just comes at like a different angle, and I think he set it up off of the, off of the turtle position. Um, but got his elbow in really high in, in a way where, where it kind of looks like a, a typical no-arm choke, the way that he holds it. Uh, but he still has the arm in and still gets a, a ton of pressure on it. Uh, nearly got Jacare Souza with it, which easily would have been submission of the year had he gotten it. But um, was able to get Dave Branch, which is really impressive for him to do. Uh, really unique submission in terms of how he finished it. Granted, the guillotine on, in and of itself isn't unique, but the setup that he has and the way that he finishes it is unique. Um, so that's definitely impressive there. So if I have to compare Hermanson's guillotine to... Bermuda's is guillotine. I, I mean, they both have unique setups. Um, one with Crucifix, one from Turtle. I, I guess Hermanson comes from position that's a little bit more common, whereas um, getting to that Crucifix position is a little bit less common, and, and forcing it there definitely um, deserves some credit. So I guess I'll lean towards uh, Manny Bermuda's on that one. Um, but again, there, there's a very high likelihood that that's um, my personal bias on that. But, it, but again, both are great submissions and both deserve to be mentioned among the sub of the year candidates. So then you would have Manny Bermudez as guillotine versus Misha Serkinov's Peruvian necktie. And as, as much as I love the Manny Bermudez guillotine, um, I, I think I have to go with the, the Peruvian necktie just in terms of being both a rare submission, but then also um, the fine details to finish it. So sub of the year will be Misha Serkinov for KO of the year. Uh, for this one, I have a, a few more options, so I actually have six of them. Uh, so... Hmm. I guess I'll just go down the line, sort of like what I did with uh, Fighter of the Year. So the first one is Magomed Ankalaev's front kick. Um, front kick knockout, I forgot what the guy's name was. It was that um, African champion. Um, Kevin Lee's head kick versus Gregor Gillespie as well. To me, both both were impressive head kicks, but I'd have, have to give the edge to Kevin Lee just in terms of how he set it up, uh, how he used his punches to set it up, and how he was able to, to sort of time and um, know exactly where... Gregor Gillespie would be in space as he was exiting the pocket um, a- after getting caught with that overhand right. Because there, there was a great punch that was landed before it where he was um, wor- working around Gregor Gillespie's jab. So both the punch and the kick um, were both really impressive, uh, well-timed and well-placed. So I'll give the edge to Kevin Lee. Uh, so then Kevin Lee versus the next contender, which is Zhang Weili versus Jessica Andrade. Uh, Weili had Andrade hurt as she was coming in after throwing a straight punch, uh, landed a bunch of big knees to the body in the clinch, had her up against the fence, and was able to finish her off against there. Uh, but to me, well, it was a, a great flurry from Zhang Weili. I, I still have to give the edge to Kevin Lee. 
Um, so then the next one would be Masvidal versus Askren versus Kevin Lee versus Gregor Gillespie. Um, what, what made Kevin Lee's knockout great was that he was able to get some reads on Gregor Gillespie and time multiple strikes, both the punch and the kick. Uh, Masvidal didn't need to get to the point where he was making reads because he just knew right away that coming in he was going to be able to get Askren to, to shoot. He didn't have to see Askren shoot multiple times throughout the course of that fight already. Uh, he, he already had that read from heading into the fight and landed that huge flying knee uh, right off the bat. Fastest knockout in UFC's, in UFC history. Uh, so in comparing these two, uh, it sort of becomes a question of what do you value more? Do you value someone just being able to get someone out of there right away? Or do you value someone who's making some reads over the course of a fight and then exploiting those reads and getting a finish off of it? In, in some ways, I'm a little bit more biased towards, towards someone who's able to, to learn on the go and, and make adjustments on the go. With that being said, it's sort of unfair to, to take that away from Jorge Masvidal because by him getting the knockout so quickly, he didn't have to do it. Uh, so uh, th- this is one where I, I could go either way. And again, whatever one I pick, if you want to argue the other way, I, I'd probably agree with you, actually. Um, but for me personally, I'm going to give the edge to Kevin Lee. Uh, again, I know it's not terribly fair. I, I know that Jorge Masvidal didn't need to make any reads and adjustments because he just got it right away. He, he had all, all his reads and adjustments were made part of the fight. Um in, in terms of studying tape. Uh, but, man, I, I really appreciated that Kevin, Kevin Lee knockout. Um, so then that moves on to the next one with Chan Sung Jung versus Hanano Moicano. Um, similar to Kevin Lee where he was able to slip a jab and throw an overhand on top. Um, he dropped Moicano with the overhand, whereas Kevin Lee had hurt Gregor and then was able to finish him with that head kick. Uh, then on the ground um, for Jung, he, he showed some great grappling to um, to dominate from back control against a guy in Moicano who's a very good grappler. Even though he was hurt, um, Moicano's still a really really tough guy to get into a position like Chan Sung Jung did when he's hurt. Uh, so that was impressive as well. But to me, I'm still going to give the edge to Kevin Lee because not only did he land the overhand, but he landed that head kick right off of him, put him away right off of the overhand, uh, where Jung um, had to work a little bit more to get the finish after that. Uh, and then Jessica Andrade for the slam knockout of Rose Namajunas. Uh, she, she was losing that fight prior to that point, but um, also went for that slam before and um, wasn't as successful with it. This time she was. Slam knockouts aren't things you, things you see all that, that often. That definitely is enough for her to, to get onto the KO of the year nominee list. But to me, that, that Kevin Lee versus Gregor Gillespie knockout, it it, it just stands out to me. I, I think the top two here are the Mosfell Askren one and the Kevin Lee versus Gregor Gillespie one. And w- with me giving Kevin Lee the edge there, I guess I have to give him the edge here as well over Jessica Andrade. Um few more MMA topics to get to, and then I'll get to the NCAA wrestling and then also BJJ ones. Um, so I'll look at business move of the year. So for, for this topic, it's, it's sort of a broad topic, and what I'm looking at from it is when you're a professional athlete, whether you're a fighter, whether you're like a in a team sport as well, you're sort of in a unique time period of life where to, to dominate your craft, you really have to put a lot of time and effort into it, but you're also at a point where there are a lot of people... Um, whether it's other high-level entertainers who, who can be useful business partners to you or whether it's just business people who can offer you great opportunities to to pivot into something that'll, that'll keep you making a lot of good money for the rest of your life. There are a lot of great opportunities while you're still an active fighter, to whether it's to start your own business, whether it's to, to make these connections and, and, and really build towards either growing your audience massively where you can make a ton of money throughout your MMA career or at least setting yourself up for the future. Now, granted, a lot of these these cases where you're having fighters who are like taking private meetings with with top business execs or 
or working on other business deals. A lot of the a lot of news that there could be from there just isn't coming out. So my list, in all likelihood, is missing what could be the best options here. Um, but I'm just going off of what I see and what I know. Uh, so with that being said, the nominees that I have are Tyron Woodley for deciding that he wanted to get into rap and having his album, his debut album come out and having Wiz Khalifa, who is a massive rapper, uh, massively successful rapper, on his debut single. Uh, Jorge Masvidal, after sort of becoming like this fighter who people who were who watched MMA really knew of, uh, he really exploded this year. And in addition to what he did in the cage, he also made an investment uh, through his um, through through his agents as well. It made it made a really big investment in media. Uh, so we've seen a YouTube channel from him pop up. Um, he's been trying to sell shirts uh, based on some of the phrases that he's been doing. Looks like he's made some decent money at that as well. Uh, so for him, it doesn't seem as though. It, at least clearly yet, it's not as though we know that he's done anything that's going to set him up for like a, a long-term job after he's done with MMA. But he's done a lot of interesting things to, to build himself up and make himself an even bigger star than he already was. Uh, even aside from what he had done in the octagon, which was very impressive and definitely helped him out a lot. Uh, Israel Adesanya, leading into that fight that he had sold out the arena in Australia for, he, he did that dance heading into the cage, uh, then gets the knockout win, and went on just a, an absurdly long media tour. Uh, a lot of it in the U.S., um, looking for a lot of different media platforms that seem to seem to jive with uh, what his interests are. So did a lot of work with um, some of the bigger hip-hop stations in America. Uh, obviously went on the Joe Rogan podcast, looked for a lot of the biggest media that he could find, and did interviews with them to really get his name out there. And having that, that sort of viral clip online of, that starts with him doing the dance before he goes in and then getting the knockout after, uh, it definitely helped him out a lot. We haven't seen him fight since then, so it's not quite so easy to tell how big of a star he, he really became off of that. Um, but between him doing a great job as an, an entertainer, uh, a great job as a fighter, and then doing a great job promoting himself and getting in front of as much media as possible afterwards, that definitely deserves some, some attention. Uh, we have Ben Askren, who prior to this year was not in the UFC, was, was a guy who hardcore fans knew of, uh, but definitely wasn't a major star. Um, he's going to be mentioned in the promo of the year as well. Um, but what this is going to be looking at more so is, um, just outside businesses. Now, obviously he's retired now, but with that being said, he, he's still very busy. So he's always been working on his wrestling academy, the Askren Wrestling Academy. I, I'm not really going to include that in, in terms of, um, business moves this year. But what I will talk about is that he's really made himself a name in the cryptocurrency community. Granted, I'm not big on crypto at all. I, I find it to be a scam, but that's a, a, a whole other issue. Um, but at least there, it, he, he's shown that he's been able to build his name there um, get some sponsorships from some of the bigger crypto exchanges, even though he's not a, a fighter anymore. He, he still has a name in that community. And also in the collegiate wrestling community, he just got signed on to what it, it sounds as though it's a lucrative contract from Flow Wrestling to be a co-host on their um, multiple-time-a-week podcast, Flow, Re Flow Wrestling Radio Live. Um, so, so there as well. And it's really worth noting with him is that while he was still fighting, he was going out of his way to talk about wrestling. He was doing other wrestling podcasts. He was doing podcasts about cryptocurrency. He was interacting with a lot of people who were big in those spaces. And as a result, now that he's actually retired, uh, he set himself up to make some good money in both spaces. So for him, uh, a lot of hustle outside of just what he did inside the Octagon this year. We have Bryce Mitchell making the case for Reebok having camo shorts. If you think about Bryce Mitchell, he's a guy who fought on the Ultimate Fighter, lost on the Ultimate Fighter, has a couple wins right now, but I feel like there are plenty of fighters like that out there who you can't even think of or you don't really even know of, 
Bryce Mitchell, you definitely know who he is. Uh, and part of the reason why is because of the fact that he really decided that he wanted to make Arkansas a big part of his identity. It's something that I've, I've talked about a little bit in the past, but something that's really bothered me with a lot of American fighters is that you hear American fighters complain all the time about, oh, well, if I was Brazilian, the Brazilian fans would love me, or if I was Irish, the Irish fans would love me, but American fans don't really get behind their fighters. And the reality of the situation is, is that American fans do get behind their athletes, um, but that typically is the case in a sport where American athletes aren't all that exceptional. So tennis, oftentimes, you, you don't have Americans at the top at the top of the world in tennis winning the majors. So when an American comes around and actually does that, the fans definitely get behind them. Uh, but in MMA, if you look at the if you look at any sort of ranking where they have a flag of the nationality, there, there's American flags all over the place. So being an American who's great at MMA does not make you unique at all. Um, but being from one of the many states in America that's great, that could make you unique. There are certain states that don't have uh, a ton of great fighters from there. So if you make the state your identity rather than the country, that, that'd be a smart way to go. Especially when you think about the population of Ireland relative to the population of many of the different states in the country. There, there are a lot of states that have greater populations in Ireland that have greater populations than some of these other countries. Uh, so some fighters, I feel like they get a little bit too too greedy trying to trying to be America's fighter rather than their state's fighter. As Americans, like I, I'm, I live in Illinois right now. If a, if a fighter started repping Nebraska, I would be like, oh, well, he doesn't rep me. Like, no, I'd still know he. I, I still understand that he reps the United States. I still understand that he's... He's American like I am, uh, but if you're from Nebraska, it would mean a lot more for you to, to see the fighter who's actually repping Nebraska. So for, for for Bryce Mitchell, for him really leaning into Arkansas, if you're an American and you're not from Arkansas, you still get it, you still understand it, you still like understand that Bryce Mitchell's an American like you are. Uh, but if you're from Arkansas, you really appreciate the fact that Bryce Mitchell's leaning into it. The camo shorts thing was sort of like him trying to take sort of like a cultural reference for Arkansas and trying to trying to make it a UFC wide thing. So for that. He really um, built his name in Arkansas, and also by building himself as as a guy who represents the South, uh, he, he was able to just get on a podcast with Theo Vaughn, who is probably one of the most famous Southern comedians, though he's from Louisiana, uh, and really is helping helping to build his profile there. So if you look at Bryce Mitchell on paper in terms of uh, what his accomplishments are in MMA, he, he's become a much bigger star than, than most others are with, with similar accomplishments, largely because of him leaning into the fact that he's from Arkansas and, and taking advantage of media when he can. Um, and then the last one would be Aljamain Sterling, who is joining his buddy Al um, Iaquinta in, in doing real estate and, and starting to set up a career in that. Uh, but he spoke at some real estate events. Uh, he started getting into selling homes. Uh, so that's just him um, working himself into a career where once he's done fighting, uh, he'll have plenty of experience in real estate and be able to, to build off of the momentum that he's building right now. And by being a fighter, he's getting opportunities that he otherwise wouldn't. I mean, if you take someone else, if you take me, for example, and give me the same real estate experience as Aljamain Sterling. I'm not getting the speaking opportunities that I'm that he's getting. Uh, I'm not getting in front of a lot of the, the, the same big real estate heads that he, he's getting in front of. And, and a big reason why he's doing that is because he's, he's a fighter. But like I mentioned with this award, one of the upsides of being a fighter and being a high-profile fighter is you get those opportunities and you actually... It, it would be wise to take advantage of them. And Aljamain Sterling's taking advantage, so that's why he's, he's a nominee here. So... Given that there are six options here, I guess I'll run it down here uh, same way as I did with the KO of the year. So it'd be Woodley getting Wiz Khalifa on his debut versus Hori Masvidal, investing in, in um, media around him, in particular the YouTube channel. To me, what's tough about this is that on paper, this easily goes to Tyron Woodley. For him to get into music and to have the, the kind of mentors that he has around him, for him to actually get Wiz Khalifa on a song with him, it's huge. I mean, imagine like Bryce Mitchell getting like a, a country music star, like I don't know Garth Brooks on a song with him, like that, that. That'd be crazy. Tyron Woodley did that. So at least if you look at the move on paper, 
Tyron Woodley easily beats out Jorge Masvidal, like setting up a YouTube channel and being more active on social media and having his management team do more there to, to help him and help get his name out. Uh, even when you look at him getting The Rock involved and actually having The Rock come there and wrap the belt around his waist, that's impressive as well. But on paper, what Tyron Woodley did should be should mean more. The problem for Woodley is that his songs just really aren't catching on with fans that much. It doesn't seem like he's building up a great following. Um, as like a, a guy in his mid to late 30s with multiple kids, him constantly trying to rap about stuff that 20-year-olds who are just trying to impress people rap about, it, it, it sort of seems odd. Um, it doesn't seem like his album sold a whole ton. If you look at his songs on YouTube, it's not as though there's like a major amount of views on it. Uh, typically with YouTube, uh, songs get tons of views because oftentimes people play them back multiple times. Um, with, with his songs, the, the numbers on there just aren't all that great. So while what he's done was great, while he did a great job of networking, while he did a great job of getting a, a huge star on his song, the actual results haven't been there. Whereas Hori Masvidal, it's not as though what he did... Uh, on paper seems as impressive, but the numbers actually seem to be there. I think there's actually a chance that Hori Masvidal has, has more numbers on his YouTube channel than Tyron Woodley does, and that's with Masvidal actually like having like videos of like him fighting or videos um, like calling out Kamaru Usman relative to to Tyron Woodley, who has music, which in, in theory should have more views. So it, with this one, you're, you're sort of arguing what means more, the, the act itself or the results? If you're going on results, you're giving it to Hori Masvidal. If you're going on the act itself, you're giving it to Tyron Woodley. And so that's... Hmm. That makes it tough for me. I think for this, I'm going to go with the act itself. And I guess for Woodley, you would hope that he, he's able to build off of what he has so far and actually like set himself up where he can actually make decent money and rap in the future. I don't know that he's a good enough rapper to do it. But it really does mean a lot to me that he was able to to build the friendships that he has in the rap community and actually get Wiz Khalifa on a song with him. You can definitely argue that the song isn't all that good, but it, it says a lot that he actually got Wiz Khalifa to, to collaborate on a song with him. So I'm going to give him the slight edge over Masvidal on that one. But uh, again, if you want to say, no, what, what matters most is results, and Masvidal has the better results, I, I can't disagree with you on that. But I, I feel like I feel like I'm going process over results on this one. I feel like there are going to be plenty of other arguments where I go results over process, but it, it, at least right now, I, I feel like I have to go process and give it to Woodley. Um, next one would be Israel Adesanya's dance and then media tour following that. Um, huh. So that's comparing that to Woodley again. What Adesanya did, the, the dance itself and the media tour, I, I guess you could argue they were both related to MMA and that once he's done with MMA, it's not as though either of those are going to necessarily set him out, set himself up for the future. So I guess in that way, I, I probably have to give the edge to Woodley in that, in theory, if the rap career were to were to kick off and having Wiz Khalifa on your debut song definitely would help you do that, that w what he did was was more substantial. So I guess I'll keep Woodley as, as a leader so far. Um, and, and I guess you could argue that Masadal has been more successful with his media work than um, than Israel Asani. Masadal has been very busy as well, uh, working a lot with Dan, Le Dan Lebetard. Um, I think he did, did Jim Rome and a handful of other um, high-profile sports um, sports media as well. Uh, then Ben Askren building his following in uh, the crypto worlds and in the collegiate wrestling worlds uh, versus Tyron Woodley as a rapper getting Wiz Khalifa on it. Technically, by getting on Flow Radio Live, I believe Flow Radio Live is the biggest podcast in the wrestling space. So for Askren to not only get to be on that, but then to be paid handsomely to do so, Though the the scale of 
comparing like Flow Radio Live to um, to the rap game. I mean, obviously rap is is a whole lot bigger. It, it's very impressive what Askren did there to get himself on that show. Uh, the, the following in crypto, again, I don't follow crypto super close, so I don't exactly know how big it is, but it, it seems as though a lot of the big players are, are definitely um, in, interacting with him a lot. So I guess I'll give the edge to Askren here. In that he he got to the he got on the biggest show in wrestling uh, within a year of within months of retiring really, um, and is, is making good money doing that, and with him also getting involved in the crypto world, I, I guess there could be good money for him to make there again. If you look at things that are investments versus currencies, you you could start having arguments there in in terms of if the point of crypto is that it's just an alternative currency, then why are people calling it an investment every time you put money into it rather than just being like a conversion of money. Um, when people are talking about it, they're oftentimes talking about it in terms of an investment, like, oh, look at what kind of return I got on my crypto. Look at this graph showing the value that's increased over time. Um, so, so I guess the argument of whether or not crypto is, is sort of like this pyramid scam where you buy in and then you try to convince other people to buy in. So whatever you bought is worth more. Uh, you, you can make your arguments on whether or not that's a good thing, but by him being involved in it, definitely there are a lot of people who are interested in it as well. So for for Ben Askren, I, I would give him the edge over Woodley, um, largely based on the fact that what he's done in wrestling has been so big. And that's without even mentioning the fact that he's also um, the coach of the Wisconsin RTC as well. Uh, so then I would put Ben Askren versus Bryce Mitchell. Uh, so Bryce Mitchell heavily leaning into his Arkansas base, um, starting to build a fan base down south, um, and then also getting out the Avon's podcast. I think a lot of what Bryce Mitchell has done so far has sort of been like set, setting some early seeds um, that are eventually going to grow and possibly make him really a big star down south to the point where even when he retires from MMA, he'll have some other options. Um, but at least with this, it, it's more so that he's been building himself up as an MMA star, more so than like building himself up in other avenues where he can make a lot of money once he's done with MMA. So I guess for that reason, I'll keep Askren as the leader. Uh, so then I would put Askren versus Aljamain Sterling and what he's been doing in real estate. And to me, while uh, I, I think you can say similar things for Aljamain Sterling and that what he's doing right now is sort of like putting some seeds in place um, that haven't quite grown yet. Uh, granted, they're, they're good seeds to put in place, but I would still say that Ben Askren uh, would get the win here uh, for Business Move of the Year by work his, working his way into the top podcast in wrestling, uh, getting paid handsomely to do so, and then also um, building a name in the, crypto, in the crypto community as well. For a promo of the year, I have Ben Askren and his Boom Roasted promo. I have Nate Diaz and the Bad Motherfucker promo that led to the BMF title fight. Uh, Israel Adesanya calling out Paulo Costa after beating Robert Whitaker. I have Jorge Masvidal's post-fight press conference after knocking out Ben Askren uh, with a super necessary line. And then Colby Covington, uh, sort of a combo from his fight against Robbie Lawler. Uh, both him coming out to the Kurt Angle theme song, and then also his uh, back-and-forth interview with uh, Kamar Usman, where he had the the famous line, did the president call you today? No, that's right, you're a loser. <laughs> Which is just... <laughs> Such an absurd, absurd but funny line, so I, I feel like I had to include that there. Uh, so there are five total um, promos in here. Uh, so I guess, uh, again, I'll, I'll go down the line since it's not an even number. So Ben Askren's Boom Roasted versus Nate Diaz's BMF. Uh, the, the value of the Boom Roasted, what, what the idea behind Boom Roasted is, is that when Ben, ben Askren came out of the scene, he wasn't terribly well-known by people who weren't already big MMA fans. Um but between the time that he was traded over and the time that he got in the cage and fought Robbie Lawler, there was a ton of interest that was built into him. And a lot of reason for that interest was because he was calling out pretty much everyone at welterweight. Again, at this time, 
Tyron Woodley was still the champion, and welterweight sort of seemed like a stale division. People didn't really know that there was anyone out there who could beat Woodley. The guy who was supposed to do it was, was Stephen Thompson as a guy who could keep the fight on the feet and be a better striker than Woodley, but Thompson was unable to do so after two fights. Uh, both fights were relatively boring at that. So it was kind of like, well, what, do we, what are we going to do? Who's going to beat Woodley? Who's going to make this division interesting? And Askren busts in, and all of a sudden, he's just calling out everyone. And, and the idea behind Boom Roasted is that when, he, when he's calling out like 100 different people, or calling out like all the contenders, it's kind of like, well, here's what I don't like about you, Boom Roasted. Here's what I don't like about you, Boom Roasted. So the idea of Boom Roasted is more so that he was sort of like this fresh face coming into welterweight who was calling everyone out um, and creating storylines where pretty much no matter who you put him up against, there, there could be a good reason to watch it. Uh, and it definitely made things interesting at welterweight, but it definitely made it where he was very interesting, where a lot of people wanted to see him fight. Uh, it definitely benefited him when he got that win over Robbie Lawler, uh, put him in a position where had he beaten Masvidal, there was a good chance that he was going to leapfrog Colby for a title fight. Um, but with him losing the way that he did, it also turned Masvidal into a massive star. Um, granted, getting a five-second knockout helps a lot, but there have been other people who've had quick knockouts in the UFC who haven't built their stars in the way that Masvidal did. And you definitely have to argue a big reason why Masvidal became so big was because this guy who goes around ripping on everyone, boom roasting everyone, uh, faces Masvidal, and then Masvidal is sort of like this no-nonsense street guy who knocks him out in five seconds. Uh, so it definitely helped out Masvidal a lot, and he, he definitely owes a lot to Ben Askren for, for his stardom. Um, that versus Nate Diaz, who, after getting a win over Anthony Pettis, uh, said that he's the baddest motherfucker in the game, and the guy who he wants to fight next uh, is also a bad motherfucker in Jorge Masvidal. It's sort of a weirdly worded promo, but what that promo ended up building was that BMF title fight. So again, here's another big promo that Jorge Masvidal really reaps the rewards of. Uh, so they end up creating this BMF title fight. They create a title for it. They get The Rock to show up and, and put it on the winner's on the winner's waist. They headline MSG without an actual weight class title on the line, which just seems incredibly absurd. For for Conor McGregor, he's, he's a major star who, who can bring in a ton of money. And for him, a big reason why he hadn't been back in so long was because he wanted to headline a card. But the UFC was like, look, we're not in a position to put you in a title fight after you losing to Khabib. Uh, we typically don't do non-title fights as headliners for peer reviews, so we, we want you on an undercard. And with this BMF fight, not only are they headlining a, a card by putting a, a non-title fight on top of it, I would argue that the BMF title is a non-title fight, but it also sort of set a precedent that was quickly taking advantage of right after where Conor McGregor was then able to headline a card, uh, which is going to be the January 18th card. So th- this promo, whether you want to argue if it was the best word to promo, the, the effectiveness of it, he, he eventually set a precedent that not only created a, a, a huge fight uh, that the president even went to with this BMF title fight, but it also created a precedent that led to, that, that are, I could argue led to Conor McGregor getting to headline a card in a few weeks against Donald Cerrone. Uh, that, of course, being a card that sold out within minutes uh, for over a $10 million gate. So in, in terms of impact on the business, that BMF promo definitely had a bigger impact than Ben Askren's Boom Roasted. Um, ben Askren's Boom Roasted was valuable in that it really revitalized the the whole division, and it was something that happened over time. But to me, see, see this is where it gets funny, because I just, in, in business move of the year, I went process over results, and right now I'm starting to lean results over process, because if, if we're going process, then Askren, Boom Roasted should be ahead of Nate Diaz. If we're going results, then Diaz should be ahead of Askren. So for promo of the year... I think with promo, I'm going to lean results. With business move, I guess in business, oh my god. See, this is tough. I'm going to go process in business and results in promo. I'm trying to think of how I can rationalize that. 
I, I guess in business you can have like a, a great marketer who who you have working for your firm and they, they can do a lot of the right things and really optimize optimize what you're working with. But you can have someone else who who just has a better business model or a better business model, or maybe just like has a better product and they'll still be successful in spite of their, their marketing not being quite as good. Um, whereas in promo, you're, you're kind of starting from a similar spot. It's just what what are you saying and how is it how how is it catching on with people? And, and I guess the BMF idea caught on with people a little bit more than the Boom Roasted thing did, even though people a lot of people tuned in to watch Askren. The the effects of this BMF thing really really were effective. So I, I guess for that reason, and again, like like I'll have to say for like the hundredth time, if you disagree with me, chances are you're probably right. But but also I'm I'm not really taking a hard line on this. But I'm gonna go with Nate Diaz on this one. But again, you you can definitely argue that the process behind Ben Askren's Boom Roasted thing is greater than Nate Diaz. Um, throwing a bad motherfucker line out there in a three in a three minute interview in the octagon. Um, next one would be Adesanya versus Costa. So Nate Diaz post fight speech, uh, Israel Adesanya post fight speech. Uh, Adesanya was heading up a fight with Costa. What I liked about that was that as the champion, he was already calling out the next fight. Um, while there's a bunch of attention on him, uh, he was starting to build up for the for the fight ahead of him. That's something I like to see. Uh, something that doesn't happen enough. Uh, so while he, he didn't know at the time that Costa had a blown up by seven, at, at this time we still don't even know if Costa's going to get the untitled fight or if they're going to give it to Romero. Uh, I, I like the process there, but again, if I'm deciding that results are going to be the big thing here for Promo Liga, then I have to go with Nate Diaz over that. Uh, so then you have Jorge Masvidal with the Super Necessary uh, post-fight press conference. Uh, for him, Super Necessary caught on. It, it was definitely a little saying that caught on with him. Uh, I think he sold some merch with it as well, but... If I've decided that promo of the year is going to be based off of results, I, I have to go with BMF over the super necessary thing. Um, and then Colby with the Trump didn't call you because you're a loser and Kurt Angle theme. Uh, it was great for him, uh, positioning himself, r- really firmly positioning himself as that pro wrestling heel. Uh, people went from hating him because they just didn't like what he said to kind of being like, okay, fine, he's a heel. And by, by coming out to the Kurt Angle theme, it, it really cemented that. And, and in some ways made a lot of people like him in, in ways that they didn't before. Um, that that line about Trump not calling him because he's a loser is hilarious. Um, but that's uh, again if we're looking at results, um, Colby versus Usman looks like it did decent money, but it, it it's been nowhere near as impactful as the the Nate Diaz BMF promo. So I'm gonna give Nate Diaz the the win for promo of the year. But again, like I mentioned, if you want to argue that Ben Askren uh, did a better job over a longer period of time with his boom roasted um, promos, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, Last MMA one to talk about is promotional failure of the year. So I have four selections here. I have the PFL pushing Kayla, Har- Kayla Harrison. Uh, so assuming that she wins tonight, she'll get a million dollars plus whatever else she's she's made over the course of the season uh, in a four-person division at lightweight. Uh, lightweight for women just is very, very thin. The UFC's having a hard enough time packing 145, uh, let alone 155. It's just, it, it doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense to get behind a 155-pound women's fighter in the first place. Um, never mind it being Kayla Harrison. Like the big fight they had in, in mind for her was against a former 135er and Sarah Kaufman, who isn't exactly a star maker. Um, so deciding that they really want to get behind Kayla Harrison, to me, it just feels like it feels sort of like they were looking at the past success of Ronda Rousey and be like, oh well, judo girl make big money. Here's another judo girl. Let's make big money with her. And I just don't. Both, both based on the division and also based on Kayla as a person. I just don't see her being a major star, being someone who's worth over a million dollars. Um, so for the PFL to make that investment in her, especially with them being in a position right now where it doesn't seem like their events are making a whole lot of money, they're getting by as far as they are because they've gotten in a lot of venture funding. Um, 
the fact that the UFC sold for four billion dollars is, I'm sure, is a big part of their their deck. Anytime they pitch to an investor, they say, "Hey, look, um, this is the growth that we're seeing in MMA. Um, we're putting together a big MMA promotion. Why not invest in us if you can't invest in the UFC?" And I think that investors who aren't major MMA fans who don't realize um, what's going on there are, are, are buying into that. Um, but to me, the PFL is sort of like a ticking time bomb on when they're going to fail and making a major investment in Kayla Harrison just doesn't seem like a smart investment that they're going to get a whole lot of money back on. Uh, so that is one of the options. Um, there's the UFC New Work promos. Uh, this was Colby versus Lawler. They were kind of handcuffed in that this fight was going to be during the middle of the day because ESPN had already had a deal with the NFL to, to run the Hall of Fame ceremony at night. Uh, so they kind of put themselves in a tough position in the first place. But what, what really bothered me about this is that Colby Covington went out of his way to be a heel, uh, to be the guy that you love to hate. And most of the promos for this fight was just, here's Colby Covington spending his own money to, to go visit the troops and to really be a positive force for the troops. And if you're trying to take advantage of a guy who's a heel and, and all your promos are based around how good a guy he is and how good he is to the troops, uh, you're, you're just messing up the storyline. So to me, that, that deserves a promotional failure of the year nominee. Uh, another one from the UFC is them rushing the interim lightweight title fight. So back in April, they felt they needed to fill the top of a card uh, in Atlanta. And it was supposed to be Tony Ferguson versus Dustin Poirier uh, for the interim lightweight title fight. And in that case, it would make sense. Um, at that point, either Tony Ferguson gets knocked off and then Dustin Poirier, um, with Ferguson out of the way, then fights uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov or Ferguson gets the win there. And you finally get that Ferguson versus Khabib fight. Uh, but at the time, Ferguson was dealing with some mental issues. Uh, the timing just didn't quite out, quite work out for him. He was able to come back in June, so April was a little bit too soon. June was fine for him. Um, but by rushing that title fight, uh, they decided to move up Max Holloway and put him in there instead. You, you can make some arguments that maybe Max Holloway suffered some damage in that fight that's hurting him to this day. I, I don't think Max is the shot point fighter people claiming he is. Uh, he, he had a tough matchup in the Poirier fight. He had a tough matchup in the Volkanovski fight. I think you got to give those guys credit. Um, but either way, had they been able to wait on that lightweight title fight, even if they still want to put that interim title fight together, if you have Ferguson in it, and if Ferguson wins it, then that means that Ferguson fight would have happened back in September. Um, so at least then we would have already had Ferguson versus Khabib, the fight that everyone wants to see. Um, or if Dustin Poirier beats Ferguson, well then, great for Dustin. And at this point, we're not all worried about Tony Ferguson. Maybe at this point, maybe Justin Gaethje is next in line for, for Khabib. Um, but by by forcing Ferguson's hand there, by, by having it where he had to had to sit it out, you, you miss out on the opportunity. We still don't have the Ferguson versus Khabib fight that we want. Um, we're, we're still pretty far away from the Gaethje fight. Gaethje's probably going to have to fight again, and maybe he loses again. So that matchup that a lot of people want to see might not even happen if Gaethje's not able to win his next fight. So to me, the lightweight title picture definitely got hurt by them rushing in a main event and um, forcing Max Holloway into a position that really should have been Tony Ferguson's. Um, next topic to talk about, is going to be, be or actually never mind i've still got to get through promotional failure of the year uh last one last nominee is um Kavach america is doing tito ortiz versus alberto del rio uh, where they paid both of them major money expecting them to to draw on a big pay-per-view number and from all from all accounts at least in america it, it did really poorly uh, but i don't think it, it did very well in, in um in latin america either uh so them making a big investment and seemingly losing a lot of money on it so then we would compare the PFL pushing Kayla Harrison versus UFC Newark's promos. Um, while I didn't like the UFC Newark promos, and I felt like they really missed an opportunity there to promote Colby in, in the way that they probably should have with him being a heel, to me, it was still a card that was going to be tough for them to to get good numbers on because of the time of the day, time of day that it was happening. Uh, it was also put together last second. Uh, meanwhile, PFL making a year-long push with Kayla Harrison that's likely going to be going into next year too. 
Uh, there's a lot more time behind it. There's a lot more effort behind it. Those, in theory, should be a lot more thought behind it. And so for that reason, I have PFL pushing Kayla Harrison um, as winning on that half of the bracket. On the other half, we have the UFC rushing the interim lightweight title fight versus Kambach, um doing the Tito versus Del Rio fight. The upside for the UFC is that had Max Holloway won that fight, uh, which was a real possibility, then you could have had Max versus Khabib, which would have been a great fight, possibly a, a gigantic fight, really. Uh, at that point, he could have a chance to be a, a double champion. And in beating Khabib, who a lot of people want to watch, it, it could have built Max to an enormous levels had he gotten the win there and then continued his momentum at at, light, at uh, Featherweight, which ultimately we saw didn't happen. Um, but in April, we didn't know that was going to be the case. We didn't know that Alex Volkanovski was going to beat him. We didn't know that Dustin Poirier was going to rock him multiple times throughout the course of the fight. So it, at least heading into that fight, there there were some, some situations that could have come out of it that were good. Granted, regardless, Tony Ferguson's getting screwed regardless. But there were still some pos- some positive things that could have happened out of it. You could still argue that the Dustin Poirier fight did really well. It's not like it was the worst thing ever, and it, it sets up 2020 where you're still going to get the Tony Ferguson fight in 2020. You still could get the Justin Gaethje fight in 2020. So it, there's a chance that there might not be major damage from it, uh, but it's more of like a short-term thing where 2019 could have been better than it otherwise was, uh, and they sort of kicked the ball down the road to make that main event. Um, meanwhile, the Kombach, uh tito versus Del Rio fight, I, I don't know that Kombach is in the best spot to be losing major sums of money, and it looks like they probably did lose a lot of money on this one. So I'd have to give them the edge on promotional failure of the year. So then that puts um, PFL pushing Kayla Harrison versus Kombach, uh doing Tito versus Alberto Del Rio. Uh, for Kombach, it was a, a four in a pay-per-view, which they don't typically do. Uh, and it was also more of like a one-event thing. Whereas the PFL um, pushing Kayla Harrison is, like I mentioned before, is a year-long thing and something they're looking to do beyond that. Even if they cut it off cut it off after one year, that would be a lot of money wasted uh, over the course of one year. But it looks like it's something they're going to be doing over time. And for that reason, I really think that the PFL having such a hard push behind Kayla Harrison, who I just don't see being a big star, um, both competitively and also from a personality standpoint, I think to me that's the the worst promotional failure of the year. Um, so that that covers the MMA awards uh, just for BJJ and NCAA. Uh, for BJJ, I have five guys selected as nominees for BJJ Fight of the Year. So you have Gordon Ryan, uh, who most notably won ADCC both at his weight and in the absolute. You have Kynan Duarte who won Worlds in the Gi, which Gordon Ryan specifically just did no-gi. So he won Worlds in the Gi. He also won his weight at ADCC in no-gi, but then was knocked off by Lachlan Giles, so he never had the chance to face Gordon Ryan in the absolute. Nick Rodriguez, who in some ways came out of nowhere and got all the way to silver medal uh, in his weight, uh, eventually falling to Kynan at ADCC. Uh, Again with him, though, no-gi experience. And by that, I mean no experience in the gi, not no gi, but no experience in the gi for no gi experience. i got to stop saying it like that. That's really confusing. Um, Mateus Denise, he ended up avenging loss at Kasai to um, Josh Hinger. Hinger had his number prior to that, uh, then goes on to ADCC, beats Hinger again, uh, then beats Craig Jones in the finals, wins ADCC. And then JT Torres um, dominated his division at ADCC, also came back and beat Wagner Hocha at a fight to win prior to ADCC. Uh, so just going down the line, uh, this time I'll actually go bottom up, um, just because I think the guys on top probably have better case than the guys on bottom, so I'll work it that way. So if you're comparing JT Torres to Mateus Denise, Torres was not very active this year. It was pretty much just ADCC for him. Uh, he did have that one fight to win match as well. Denise was a lot more active. Both guys won their divisions at ADCC. Uh, both guys were fairly dominant in doing so, so I'll give the edge to Mateus Denise just based on activity um, for this year. 
Uh, then between Mateus Diniz and Nick Rodriguez, Mateus Diniz won his division in ACC. Nick Rodriguez did not. Nick Rodriguez um, definitely deserves a lot of credit for coming out of nowhere and having having the success that he did. Uh, he's definitely been very active in the Nogi scene. Um, but but with him not winning any major tournaments and Diniz winning that ACC, I would have to give the edge to Mateus Diniz ahead of Nick Rodriguez. But again, Nick Rodriguez definitely deserves to be nominated here, given how he sort of came out of nowhere and. It really made his name really well known in the in the BJJ community. So then we have Mateus Diniz versus Kynan Twarch. Both of them won their divisions at ADCC. Kynan won black belt um, in, in the Gi as well. Had a fantastic year in his first year as black belt. Uh, also won the Spider Invitational. So to me, I would have to take Kynan over Mateus. Uh, so then we would have Kynan versus Gordon Ryan. This gets tricky because Gordon Ryan, I don't think, lost a single match all year. Uh, but he also didn't compete in the Gi all year. He... He did a lot of smaller events um, where he's doing super fights. He also did ADCC where he won every match there, uh, six of them by submission. So the case for Gordon Ryan would be Gordon Ryan also won his division like Kynan Duarte, but he also won the absolute division that Kynan was in. Um, Kynan's case would be, yes, he didn't win the absolute, but he also has two world titles because he also won the world title in the Gi. Plus he won the Spider event, which in, in some ways is, is kind of like a world title. Uh, given all the high-level guys who were working their way trying to get into that bracket in the first place, but then if you look at the guys who were in the bracket, uh, j- just a ton of killers in there, and he was able to come out on top. So if you wanted to make the argument that Kynan has effectively like two or has like three, or if you want to call like the Spider like half a world title, has like two and a half world titles relative to Gordon Ryan's two world titles, um, there's definitely a good case to be made there. Plus, BJJ is not no-gi only. BJJ also covers the gi, and Kynan's results in the gi far far outweigh Gordon Ryan's results in the gi. In, in no gi, Gordon's results outweigh Kynan's. Um, so it, it's sort of like, do you look at ADCC and look at the fact that Gordon Ryan finished ahead of Kynan in that bracket and give him the edge there? Or do you say, look, no gi, edge Gordon, but so much was done in the gi for Kynan that that makes up for the edge that Gordon had in no gi? To me, I'm actually going to agree with that argument. I'm, get, I'm going to give it to Kynan. Um... If this was Nogi Grappler of the Year, Gordon Ryan is the winner. Um, because this particular category is called BJJ Fighter of the Year, that includes Gi. Uh, because Gordon Ryan did not compete in the Gi, and Kynan did, and did fantastic in there, I'm going to give Kynan the edge. Uh, so Kynan is the BJJ Fighter of the Year um, by my pick. But again, worth noting the difference between BJJ Fighter of the Year and Nogi Grappler of the Year. Like I said, if you feel like Gordon Ryan's getting stiffed here, trust me, if this was the Nogi Award, Gordon Ryan wins this easily. Um, and then the last topic is NCAA Wrestler of the Year. So the nominees I have here are Bo Nickel, Spencer Lee, Zahid Valencia, Dayton Fix, and Austin DeSanto. Uh, I'll go top down. So Bo Nickel versus Spencer Lee. The case for Spencer Lee would be that Bo Nickel was able to compete um, in the early quarter of the year, but then he graduated. Whereas Spencer Lee is also won an NCAA title during that time period, but unlike Bo Nickel, Spencer Lee is also competing right now. Uh, so he, he's had a chance to pick up some more wins. Bo was definitely more dominant at his weight class than Spencer Lee was. Not to say that Spencer wasn't dominant. Spencer was. Um, Bo and Spencer sort of hit a handful of guys, those being Nick Piccinini, uh, Sebastian Rivera, and even Jack Mueller. Uh, he, he didn't retain the same level of dominance, whereas Bo Nickel, even against some of the top guys in his division, he was still blowing them out, blowing out Pat Brucky, blowing out Colin Moore. So... In, in terms of dominance, Bo Nickel definitely has the edge there. The question then would be, if we're just arguing based off of um, through March of 20, through March of 2019, Bo Nickel has the edge there. But the question is, what 
the, the work that Spencer Lee has done since then, um, does that make up that gap? And to me, e- even though I'd like to pick Spencer Lee ahead of him because I'm an Iowa fan and a Penn State fan, I still think Bo Nickel deserves the edge there. So then you would compare Bo Nickel to Zahid Valencia. So Zahid Valencia won at 174 pounds, moved up this year to 184 pounds, uh, and, and so far has, has been the top guy there. Did have a close match with Taylor Benz, but it seems as though he, he sort of straightened things out and is looking pretty good. Uh, so both of them are champions. Bo, uh, again, was more dominant in his weight class than Zahid was. Bo obviously was the Hodge Trophy winner as well. Um, but Zahid is now moving up weight class as number one of that new weight class and is looking pretty good so far. So does that does that make up for the difference between him and him and um, Bo Nickel? This one, I think, hmm, I don't know that's any tougher than the Spencer Lee one. I think Spencer Lee probably was a little bit more down at, at times than Zahid. So if I'm if I'm gonna say that Bo's ahead of Spencer, I probably have to say that Bo's ahead of Zahid as well. Uh, so then the next one I look at is Dayton Fix. Dayton Fix did not win nationals. Uh, the reason why he's on this list and Nick Serrano is not. Um, in part, it's because Dayton Fix ended up making the world team for the USA in freestyle. And granted, this is NCAA wrestler of the year, but I guess I felt like I needed to include that. Granted, with that being said, Dayton Fix did not make the team, or did not, or is redshirting this year for um, for Oklahoma State, so he's not even on the team right now. Um, if you look at how he lost to Nick Soriano, it was uh, to me it, it might be one of the worst jobs of officiating in, in sports in 2019. Because in wrestling, if you grab someone's headgear, it's a penalty, period. It was obvious, based on the replay, that Nick Seriano grabbed Dayton Fix's headgear prior to taking that takedown that won the match. I don't know how you can possibly look at the review and not see it. I, I mean, best case scenario, even if you're just trying to be nice about it, say, hey, look, let's just take this takedown off the board, make you guys work for it, and see who gets it. But in reality, that should have been a point against Nick Seriano, and Dayton Fix should have won that match as a result. So I feel like Dayton Fix really, though he didn't win that match officially... To me, and I feel like to anyone who who understands that rule, you, you can't go away from that match feeling like Dayton Fix lost it necessarily. So even with that being said, though, Bo Nickel was so dominant as a weight class. Granted, his weight class was nowhere near as deep as Dayton Fix's. I still have to take Nickel ahead of Dayton Fix. Uh, and then the last guy to look at is Austin DeSanto, who finished below Dayton Fix. Um, but DeSanto has done a lot this season. So last season he was able to get, I believe he finished fifth. Um but was able to be an All-American, but this year he, he worked his way all the way up to number one at a really deep weight class after beating Seth Gross. Granted, he just had another ma- match with Seth Gross yesterday at Midlands and ended up losing that one by a point. So I think for that reason, you, you could definitely argue that DeSanto should be below Dayton Fix. DeSanto is probably the most interesting guy uh, just as a personality, I think, for him. It sort of reminds me of Phil Kessel from hockey, and that Phil Kessel is sort of like an eccentric guy who you can tell loves hockey, but... He doesn't really talk a whole lot. He doesn't really give the media a whole lot to work with. Um, isn't really active on social media. So people sort of like create these own images in their own mind of what he's actually like. And it sort of makes him like kind of like this fun character to, to think about. Same thing with Austin, Austin Santa. You can just tell that he loves wrestling, but he's not super vocal. It's not like he's active on Twitter or on social media. So it's not as though you can really tell like who Austin Santo is as a person. So a lot of times you just kind of like try to fill in the blank based off of what you see. And in that way, is he, he becomes a really fascinating guy. Um, but I wouldn't put him ahead of Dayton Fix, so for that reason, if I'm not putting Fix ahead of Bo Nickel, I'm not putting DeSanto ahead of Bo Nickel either. So for that reason, Bo Nickel is my NCAA Wrestler of the Year. So that covers it, or so that covers it for all of my year-end awards. I'll I'll still be doing my normal podcast as scheduled. So 37 will be on either late Saturday or early Sunday, as as all of them are. Uh, the week after that, I'll be in a little bit in, a little bit interesting because I'll be out of town um, from Thursday all the way through to Sunday night. 
I and by Sunday night, I think that actually leads into uh, like Monday morning, like around like 1230 in the morning. So in all likelihood, I'm probably just going to pre-record a, a podcast. I don't know if I'll just have it scheduled and have a drop on the normal time or if I'll just have a drop early. But I'll probably have a more concrete decision around that um, that I'll announce in the next podcast. And again, that next podcast will be coming out either late Saturday night or early Sunday morning or, or during the day Sunday, I guess. Uh, it sort of depends what I'm working with. The audio, po- audio podcast seems to be coming out pretty quick through Anchor, but the videos. Um, right now, I'm using a new a, a new program called Headliner. I was using something called ClipChamp before, where I was putting all the pictures in, and it was just kind of like a slideshow that would just keep going back and forth. Um, but that was a really slow slow software to use. Um, at, at times, it would take like three or four hours to to get through an entire podcast, which would be an, an hour. And again, this is just like images. I'm not even doing anything, anything all that um, complicated with it. And sometimes after like the three to four hours. Uh, the file would be corrupted and like there'd be nothing to work with there, so I'd have to like keep running it back over and over. Uh, so that's why there's a lot of inconsistency with when the video podcast would come out. Um, so I, I just switched to Headliner, where it's just one still image and it just kind of has like this audio bar that's waving up and down uh, over the course of time. But with them, you insert the audio file, um, insert the picture. So I, I put the picture there, and then also like have all the topics written out on it, and then they'll like send me an email when everything's updated. So it's not as though I have like a clear idea in mind of when that when that video will be available. But once it is, then I'll upload it to YouTube. But that's part of the reason why, at least with the video podcast, it can depend on time when it comes out on over the course of a Sunday. But the audio podcast usually should be late afternoon. Uh, and, and it seems like at this point, Anchor is pretty good about once I upload it within the course of an hour, um, notification gets sent out. And if you have a subscription, you'll know about it pretty quickly. So if you want to get the podcast first or know when, it, know when it's coming, I would definitely encourage you to subscribe to the audio version, even if you prefer using YouTube. Um, the audio version at least will give you those notifications and if you're ever in, in a time where YouTube isn't available to you but you still want to listen to it it's always nice to have the audio podcast available so that covers it for this week or that covers it for this um, specific episode I'll be back uh, in a handful of days for, for episode 37 and look forward to speaking with you guys then